Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm the co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today, we'll talk with Lila Rose, founder and president of Live Action. Lila has conducted several undercover investigations of abortion facilities in the United States, including affiliates of Planned Parenthood. She's the author of the recent book, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force of Change in a Wounded World. Lila, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. So I'm sure many of our listeners are, are quite familiar with your story, but could you tell us a little bit more of the, the background, how you came to be involved, uh, both in the pro-life movement and then uh, more specifically, all the work you've done with Live Action? Sure. So I am the founder of Live Action, which I started as a teenager, um, which is now, I don't know, a decade and a half ago. And I'm from California, started Live Action in San Jose as kind of a community youth organization that was educating uh, a lot of um, Christian students, but also in some schools locally, we would give pro-life presentations. And over the years, expanded that as a college student and grew it throughout my 20s to be now where the leading online educator for the global pro-life movement. So we reach about 100 million people monthly with the truth about human dignity, facts about fetal development, um, the, the abortion procedure. We do investigative reporting on the abortion industry. And I got involved as a young, very young person because I had an encounter with what abortion was just via through through learning. I mean, I, I found this book at my parents' house. My parents were pro-life. They weren't activists, but they were very open to life and just a very um, life-affirming family. I'm, I'm one of eight kids. And when I found out about abortion, it was primarily through reading this book as a very young person, which was called A Handbook on Abortion. And it was written by these activists from the 1980s who really walked through the history of the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, who walked through uh, the abortion industry as it was in the 80s, and then also talked about the uh, abortion rate. And it included images of fetal development, human development in the womb, as well as what happens to children in abortion procedures. And learning that information was so uh, life-changing for me because I realized that I was living in the middle of one of the greatest human rights abuses of our era. I believe it is the human rights abuse of our era. At the time, 3,000 children killed every single day by legal abortion. These are human beings like you and like me. And I thought, I felt convicted that I had to do something uh, because this was this was the crisis of the day. This was the, the bloodshed of the day. And so that inspired me to start live action as a very small, small group at the time to just educate my peers because I believe that education, like I had been educated, education would be the key to saving lives and to moving our country more towards the pro-life position and more towards a culture of life. And Lila, I think I first um, became familiar with you and your work when I was working at First Things. And so this would have been 06 to 08. And I think you were at UCLA at the time. Um, and I forget exactly one of the first major public pro-life activities um, is this ringing any bells? Was there something back when you were an undergraduate at UCLA that maybe it was an I, undercover I, I, video I, sting? Do, do, do you know what I'm yeah. thinking of? Well, when in college, so I spent 
you know, less than half my time in the classroom. I don't know if I'm proud or ashamed to admit that. And then most of my time doing pro-life activism and reporting. And yes, in college, you might be referring to one of our investigative reports. My first one was of sexual abuse cover-up at a Los Angeles abortion facilities. And that was when I was a college freshman at UCLA. And then throughout my four years of college, every year we did a new investigative expose. And the one you're referencing, if it was 2008, that might have been our medical misinformation investigation, mm-hmm. exposing the lies about fetal development and the risks to abortion that are told every day in abortion clinics. That's great. And you've, and you've been keeping it up ever since. I mean, so like live action really has been, to a certain extent, your life project as you know, a teen and now an adult. Yes. I mean, I, 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 there's many more people involved, many very talented people involved now. It's, um, you know, our team is now over 30 full-time folks and we work with just amazing, really thousands of activists and, and people around the country. So it's, it's a huge movement um, that we're all part of a larger pro-life movement. But I mean, yes, I mean, my, I, I'd like to say, I mean, I'm a wife and a mom now. That's my primary vocation and there's no greater joy. Uh, but as far as my life's work, if I can help save lives and if we, I know this is something you're both passionate about, if we, if our work can help save lives, uh, what more meaningful work is there for us to to put our, our talents towards? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to, to dive into that, I guess we've, you've, both of you have referenced this a bit, um, the kind of undercover investigation project at live action. Uh, I know a lot of it has focused on Planned Parenthood, you know, the the biggest abortion business in our country by a lot. And in um, one chapter of our book, we go through a couple of the most common myths that both Planned Parenthood and its supporters promote, um, both in defense of abortion and defense of its own work. And one of the kind of foremost claims they make is that, you know, we can't defund Planned Parenthood or pro-lifers shouldn't attack Planned Parenthood because this is essential uh, women's health care. Given that you've been investigating Planned Parenthood now for more than a decade, I know that you've seen quite a bit to a contrary to the contrary. But can you tell our listeners kind of how, how to rebut that claim, how to respond to this this uh, myth? Of course. Well, first off, abortion Taking the life of an innocent human, a child, is not healthcare. It's the opposite of healthcare. It's homicide, and that's that Planned Parenthood's primary operation. I mean, their other, as they call them, services are really built around that primary operation. Like if you go into a Planned Parenthood clinic, their surgical equipment is designed for abortion. That's what they're there for. They're not providing prenatal care. They're not providing support for parents. I mean, they're they're even their name is a misnomer. It's a it's a lie to say we're here to plan parenthood. They do nothing to help parents or help parenthood. Uh, they do everything to destroy it. And as far as uh, the conversation on women's health care in our country, it's been so uh, painful and um, infuriating, I think, for just your everyday woman or man who cares about actually helping women with health care to see them take not just taxpayer funds. I get over half a billion dollars a year in federal taxpayer dollars at Planned Parenthood, but to see them on the front line of claiming the mantle of defense of women's health care, they don't provide uh, again, any care that's specific to a women's health care. I mean, when it comes to reproductive health um, for women, they're not providing, again, prenatal care. They're not providing, there was a big um, uh, dust up there where it was saying that they provided mammograms. They don't provide any mammograms at Planned Parenthood. Um, they're not providing support for young families. Um, they're not providing, you know, ad- adoption services, certainly not, or actual options if a mother wants to um, keep her child and the, and the resources, material, and otherwise she may need for that. They're not there for that. They are there. Their option for pregnant women is abortion. 
And that's why that whole uh, misnomer of choice being saying they're for choice, pro-choice is also a lie. Not just the healthcare, the name of healthcare is a lie. The name of choice is a lie because the only choice for women at a Planned Parenthood facility for a pregnant woman is abortion. One of the things that um, we point out in the book is how uh, abortion is unsafe for women. And I got an email today. Um, so, you know, we're pre-recording this. So for people who can figure out what day we recorded it, you know, I got one of your press releases today, Lila, about um, an investigation that you guys just released um, showing the DC abortion facility and, you know, various you know, health abuses that, that are going on there. And I mean, this isn't the first kind of um, uh, report that you guys have done, live action has done with various abortion clinics violating both ethics rules, safety rules. I'm thinking of the role of Planned Parenthood and not reporting sex trafficking, uh, minors seeking abortions. Um, I'm thinking of the, the, the increasing um, use of chemical abortion and how that's going to be used um, both to cover up sex trafficking and the various physical and psychological complications that that's going to bring with it. Um, could you speak to some of those, uh, um, you know, kind of undercover work you've done today's, you know, new, new report that you released and just more broadly on, um, you know, w- what's going on in terms of the consequences um, of these clinics and, and of the abortion pill? Well, the investigation from today was of the, um, it's called Sergi Health Center in Washington, D.C., run by abortionist Cesare Santangelo. And we've investigated him before. In this particular campaign, we're exposing how he, um, his process, his process of committing these really heinous late-term abortions. Um, we've had him on tape before admitting that he would commit infanticide. He would, he would leave a, a born-alive child in his facility to die. He kills children up into the third trimester, so these are viable babies, many of them. And he does an, a process called exsanguination, so he uh, attempts to bleed the baby to death in utero before delivering the baby. The problem with that is, in many cases, the baby can be born alive, and uh, that's because the, he doesn't succeed in completing the bleeding out process. And uh, in this particular video, the nurse, uh, his assistant, is telling our investigator that she has to take a Xanax before even talking to him because she has questions about the procedure, about its safety, about how it's how it progresses and their protocol at the clinic. And this is a violation of informed consent. So this is not just, you know, infanticide, homicide. They're also even the things that are technically on the books they're supposed to follow, they're not following. And that's to provide informed consent with a patient who's in their right state of mind. But they're forcing patients to take Xanax, which is a mind-altering drug, as you know, that makes you very sleepy. It makes you feel maybe silly. You're not in your fully in full have full faculties, and they're forced to take it at that facility before even talking to the doctor. And and why would they do that? Because a lot of women have doubts about having abortion, and they actually don't want to go through with it. And so they may start the process or start you know the conversation or start the appointment, and then they want to get, leave. They want to book it and leave because they're like, I, I don't feel right about taking the life of my child. But the way they prevent that at this particular facility is drugging them. And that's unethical. It, it violates uh, statute on how to treat patients, even separate from the question of abortion. Uh, but this is you know common in the abortion industry. You mentioned some of the things we've documented, Ryan, but the foundational principle here is if you have such profound disrespect for a child in the womb that you would kill that child, that you would literally dismember that child, which is what most abortions do, uh, you're not going to, it's going to be really hard for you to have just respect and care for the mother of that child, because you're already uh, shaping your entire practice around the destruction of human life. And you mentioned the abortion pill, and that's a big um, push amongst Planned Parenthood right now to 
make that you know over the counter, and these are lethal drugs designed to force a miscarriage, and they it, it lands five to six percent of women in the emergency room. This is a, 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 a drug that basically forces a miscarriage. It can cause hemorrhaging, can cause um, infection, it can cause you know a missed ectopic pregnancy because they don't require ultrasound first at abortion clinics. They don't want to require ultrasound to ensure the baby is in the uterus as opposed to the fallopian tube. So what happens, they get the abortion pill, but it doesn't actually expel the baby. The baby's still in there because the baby's in the fallopian tube. And that can be life-threatening for the mother. I mean, they don't care about the woman here. They don't care that 5 or 6% are ending up in the emergency room afterwards. They're trying to sell abortions and their ideology. And they're making you know, $500, $600 per abortion pill. And there's very low overhead for them because they just send them home with a pill or they ship, they literally mail them a pill. So it's just another example of the callousness of this industry and the lack of ethics, not just around ending a child's life, which of course is, you know, horrific. I mean, it's, it's, it's homicide, but around the treatment of the mother. Is the DC government doing anything on this? I mean, cause this isn't the first DC based clinic um, where we've had problems or maybe it's the same clinic as, you know, I'm thinking of the, um, it was the Twitter thread that you had shared maybe a month or two ago of um, the fetal remains that were found, several of which looked like might have been the result of infanticide, you know, babies born alive and then left to die. And as far as I can tell, the D.C. government hasn't done anything to investigate the abortionists, but they did, you know, arrest some of the uh, pro-life activists uh, who shed light on this. I mean, is yeah, there anything the D.C. government's willing to do? I mean, Mayor Bowser is very pro-abortion. Um, she runs the show for the D.C. Medical Examiner and the D.C. Police. Obviously, she's their boss. And yes, you're right. I mean, this abortion facility is butchering children. There were five infants whose mangled bodies were found by pro-life activists, really given to them, offered to them by a um, incineration company that picks up the the buckets of the aborted babies. And that, by the way, is also a violation of public health codes. So that company recently publicly cut ties with the abortion clinics because it was because it, it was exposed that they were picking up the bodies and burning them to use them as fuel for Baltimore neighborhoods and DC neighborhoods. I mean that's that's the insanity of what DC government is permitting and turning a blind eye to, uh, as well as infanticide. Many of these babies, uh, the five children, um, almost all of them appeared to be viable according to medical experts. The photographs of their bodies. Uh, some of these children, again, found outside of this late-term abortion clinic in D.C., indicated, you know, the trauma on their bodies, indicated that they had been victims of what is an illegal partial birth abortion, where the, the neck is severed, the baby's delivered feet first, and one little girl, her neck had been severed, her brain removed for her corpse. I mean, it was just unbelievably horrific. And this was made public. The D.C. police were contacted the bodies are in the possession, the, 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 the pro-life activists gave the bodies to the DC police. And what, has there even been a, a, a autopsy done on these children? No, there hasn't even been an autopsy done because they say there's no evidence of a crime here. You have the bodies of five infants, at least four of them who look viable, one baby boy who looks almost full term, and they're found their mangled bodies on a, on a street corner, basically. And you're not even going to do an autopsy. You're not going to investigate. This is, this is the corruption, the corrosive effect, as you write about so beautifully in your book, both of you, that the, the corrosive effect of a culture of death of a, the abortion industry that is now entangled with our state governments and our, our local officials who are turning blind eyes to the atrocities because of this uh, right, so-called right to kill, and they have to somehow protect that. 
Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, the, the story goes on. It's just un, unending horrors connected yeah. to this. No, you're absolutely right about that. And I think it, the scary part is you just know some of these people want to turn a blind eye because they're thinking to themselves, well, okay, if it had happened three days earlier, it would have been legal, right? And so now we're supposed to pretend that there's some magical line here. You almost, obviously it's horrific, but you almost respect the logical consistency, right? That if you're allowed to kill that that same baby right before birth, why should we care if it happened right after? You know, obviously we do care. We care about both. But if you don't care about the one before birth, uh, you know, that you're, you're exactly right with the logic, right? It's a very dehumanizing evil logic that says, you know, who really cares what happened to them? They were supposed to be aborted anyway. Uh, but to, to follow up a bit on what you were speaking about um, a little bit earlier, which is kind of the, the callousness of Planned Parenthood, and in particular how um, kind of the, the pro-abortion mindset can bleed into this callousness towards women, um, we did want to ask you, you know, there's this very common, uh, the co- most common argument for abortion is that this is good for women, right? That women need abortion. We don't really hear people saying, you know, abortion kills innocent human beings and isn't that wonderful, right? We hear like, no, women need this. Women can't be free and equal if they don't have access to abortion. Uh, Women in difficult situations will suffer if they can't get an abortion. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, if a woman is facing difficult circumstances in her life, and many women who are experiencing an unexpected or unplanned pregnancy and considering an abortion, there are extenuating circumstances that make life that make life feel hard or seem hard or are, is hard at the time. Having an abortion doesn't make you wealthier, more educated and healthier relationships, more physically healthy. Having an abortion now it makes you the parent of a dead child. And that's one of the greatest lies that the abortion industry tells women is that having an abortion is somehow your ticket to advancement. When you are in the exact same difficult life circumstances that you were before you got pregnant, only now you have the added trauma and lifetime regret of being involved in the death of your own child. And that's, that's you know, hard to hear for many women who are men who are post-abortive, but it's also key for the healing of a whole generation of women and men who've been lied to or believe the lies because if you don't acknowledge that a life was lost, that a, a, that that child was killed, you can't heal. You you have to you have to be able to grieve first of all, say sorry for your part in that, and then be able to grieve a death before you can heal from that kind of trauma. And so that's why I think we're living in a time when we have a whole world of walking wounded around us. You know, many many people in our own families or among our own friends even who've had abortions or been part of abortion. And a big part of our movement is connecting women and men to healing resources to get the support, the counseling they need. And I believe on a spiritual level, it's a profound act of, uh, of sorrow and repentance we need for our part in abortion individually for us to be able to access true healing. But the other part of this, too, is uh, it's, it's, it's psychological and emotional pain, but it's also, again, physical risks to women and physical harm to women. There was a whole documentary done on the link, the very um, profound link between breast cancer and abortion, because you're um, ending a healthy pregnancy when you're, you know, to get into the science, your breasts are maturing and preparing to be able to feed that child. And then you cut it off immaturely. And that creates um, problems with the woman's breasts. And she now is more susceptible to breast cancer. She can um, have breast cancer. And you see this this spike in breast cancer correlated to the time of um, legalized and popularized abortion. So there's a whole world of um, risks and harm to women. You know, a woman in the, the year after she has an abortion is 150% more likely to commit suicide, uh, to attempt suicide than if she had given birth, right? 
I mean, this was a study that was done in the early 2000s of um, over a thousand women and following their outcomes. So there's just a lot of research that's being hidden from women about the physical and the emotional toll of abortion. And you write about this, I know, in your book as well, which is so important because uh, women deserve this information. But again, it's not being offered to most of them, certainly not by the prevailing uh, pro-abortion political forces and and media supporters. Yeah, we we do touch on this quite a bit in our book. We have a whole chapter on how abortion harms women. And uh, one thing we we talk about a bit and that I've witnessed a lot over the last few years reporting on this and writing about it is that um, whenever you kind of confront abortion supporters with these kinds of realities that you're talking about, whether it's the, the abortion breast cancer link or you know, the psychological effects, the negative psychological ramifications of abortion, uh, the response is always something other than, okay, maybe abortion is bad sometimes, right? There's always an excuse. And so they just kind of ignore or dispute the the studies about the breast cancer link. But what I'm going to, what I would want to ask about in particular is the psychological issue, because what they often say, they always have this, this very common line, which is, it's just the stigma, right? There's a societal stigma around abortion. If we could just get rid of that, then women would never feel sad, angry, depressed, anxious. They wouldn't try to commit suicide. They wouldn't abuse drugs and alcohol after abortion. They'd always be happy. Can you respond to that in particular? Because I think this is a really pervasive lie from abortion supporters. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it comes back to the reality of what abortion is. What is abortion? If abortion was like removing, you know, your tonsils or your wisdom teeth, it was this um, removal of an inanimate object that's just an extension of your body that's unnecessary, that is certainly not a human life, then yeah, there should not, no one should be, you know, stigmatizing it. No one would even be against it. It would, it would not even, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but we're having this conversation. And the reason abortion regret exists is not because we think abortion is bad. It's because abortion is bad. It's because abortion is the intentional and destruction of an innocent human life. And no matter how many times you uh, cover that reality up with euphemisms or arguments or rationalizations, at the end of the day, the abortion still results in a dead child, a dead human being, someone's son or daughter. And that's a fact that no argument can change. And that's why abortion regret exists. Thank you for that. That's um, that's really well said. And I, I want to ask you about something else that you've been um outspoken on in a way that um, other pro-life leaders have not been. And and that's not a way of criticizing them. I think this is ultimately a vocational question. And some pro-life groups and some pro-life leaders um, focus solely on abortion. And then others, uh, like yourself, have have, um, kind of taken on a a more holistic, um, you know, what's the root cause here uh, approach. And you've been very outspoken on the problematic nature of the sexual revolution. And and I always appreciate it when I see you tweeting about marriage or, you know, pushing back on hookup culture, et cetera, et cetera. Because to a certain extent, like, I think that we don't ultimately um, protect every unborn child and serve every mother without addressing kind of a throwaway culture vis-a-vis sexuality Um, to, you know, borrow Pope Francis's term with the throwaway culture, but then seeing that the sexual revolution is a sexual throwaway culture. Um, Could you say more about kind of, I mean, I guess, either vocationally about why, you know, you've exercised your kind of like leadership of a pro-life group, you know, being holistic in this way, or, um, you know, just kind of like why you you think these things go together, you know, what the relationship is between a healthy marriage culture, a healthy sexual culture and abortion, how abortion has undermined the marriage culture, how to, you know, respond, um, holistically, what, what it's going to require of us. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, a lot of this whole um, part of the education that's needed around abortion it, it boils down to this point, which is that if if we if people in our society were educated and encouraged not to have sexual relations with someone unless it was their husband or wife that they were committed to for life, of course, and that they were open to having a family with, we would eradicate abortion overnight. And the reason we have the abortion crisis is because of the our, our, our twisted way of viewing sex, which is that sex is about the, the focus of sex should be pleasure and our personal uh, goals being achieved as a, as an adult and our desires being fulfilled somehow. And that it's not about um, commitment, marriage, family, all of the things that sex is wired for biologically, it's wired for bonding as well as it's designed to create new life. And the more we try to run from that physical design of sex and that reality of what sex can do and what sex is, the more we're going to run into the troubles that we're facing in our culture, which are not just abortion, which is the worst of them all, killing that that child, the fruit of sex, but it's also the, you know, they call it the rape culture or the hookup culture or the, uh, you know, the crisis in child, you know, por- uh, sexualizing children through child pornography and, and sexual abuse. I mean, just the, the insane deviance uh, we have permitted in this culture around sex and the response of the kind of abortion advocates, many of them, they align their pro-abortion stance with, well, we just need consent. You know, the, 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 the main foundation for sex, moral foundation is consent. As long as both parties consent, then everything goes. Um, but consent is not enough. I mean, there was a wonderful piece by a, a writer, I think over at Washington Post recently. I think that was the title of her piece. I thought it was so spot on to say that the only moral order around sex is consent and it's not about love and commitment and responsibility and children, again, you're going to run into the abortion crisis we have right now. So you can't, you can't talk about abortion or care about abortion, I believe, without acknowledging that abortion doesn't happen in a vacuum and acknowledging that unless and until we deal with our sexual misunderstandings and our identity problems, really a lot of it goes down to, I think, identity problems in our culture, then we're not going to be able to solve the abortion crisis. So what you've just said about identity problems, um, you know, kind of inspires me to ask this because another thing that I've appreciated, um, you know, you know, observing kind of just your leadership of of the pro-life movement and particularly, you know, things that you have said publicly about gender identity issues, Um, gender identity issues, both, you know, how bad gender identity laws erase women and, and cause harm to women, but also, I mean, how bad gender identity ideology causes harm to children, um, you know, children with gender dysphoria, uh, with respect to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. C- could you say a little bit about why um, you've chosen to be outspoken on this issue? Because uh, again, this is one where, you know, some um, some leaders have made kind of a vocational um, discernment that, you know, they're focusing just on um, the abortion issue, you've you've chosen to sp- speak out on, you know, to my mind, a, a rather controversial issue. Ob- obviously, you know, given my vocation, I was, you know, already doing some of the marriage and um, transgender stuff before Alexandra and I wrote the abortion book. Uh, but for you, you really cut your teeth as a pro-life leader and you've been willing to speak on the others. What's inspiring your 
your your speaking out on some of the transgender issues. Well, I and I, I so appreciate all of your work in that space, um, Brian. It's so important. Well, first of all, for me, you know, my work in the pro life space is not because of some special personal affinity to babies in the womb or, you know, like some like, you know, particular God from heaven came down and said, go fight abortion or something like that. It, it's because I looked at the world, our society, and I said, what's the greatest bloodshed? And it's the destruction of children in the womb. And I thought if I'm going to, I want to do something meaningful with my life and I have these talents, so I'm going to put them to work to try to save lives. But if you take a step back, and that's certainly how I started, but you take a step back and you learn more about how does abortion happen, why does it happen, and that there is a lot of other human suffering and exploitation of innocent human beings in our culture beyond abortion, and to see the transgender, I call it the trans cult, crop up in just the last you know half a decade, and their primary target is children. And for me, you know, anytime a child is the victim of you know, there's been a term used mass psychosis about the pandemic, but I think there's mass psychosis right now about gender ideology. Anytime children are the target of adults' um, ideologies and and false thinking that then changes the way we treat those children and even leading to us to kill those children in an abortion or in the trans cult, um, imposing our false and, and wild ideas about their bodies and somehow their bodies being the wrong bodies, and then going to the extent of even physically changing, uh, you know, how we treat them as well as the, you know, stunting their physical growth with puberty blockers. That's child abuse. I firmly see that as child abuse. And so, of course, my my concern is children. My concern is the most vulnerable. When I see our society and mass embracing this without thinking twice, so many, I I want to use whatever platform I have to speak out against it. So I think any pro-life advocate, I would encourage any of us, all of us, to not say, think we have to pick and choose, you know, one social ill and say we're not permitted to have, um, you know, use our, our platforms or organizations to uh, talk about the interconnection between these social ills or to, if we can, make a difference in another space. Because at the end of the day, we care about human lives and we care about truth and particularly the most vulnerable and the lies that are being told that are ultimately endangering the most vulnerable. I think that that space is where I'm most um, attracted to and try to try to work. And I know that's, that holds true for both of you as well. Yeah, thank you. That, that's just so well said. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really important work. And I think there's definitely kind of a, a logical connection between abortion and the transgender issue, Not maybe not a super apparent one. But I think if you kind of dig down, there's a way in which both of them there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be human, right? And, and what we owe to our, ourselves as human beings, what we owe to others as human beings, what it even is to be embodied, these sorts of things um, kind of crop up with both issues. But just to switch gears a little bit, looking towards the future, uh, live action has come very, very far since you started out. You know, it's like you, you mentioned at the beginning, just this immense pro-life organization or educational organization now. Um, what's next? What's on the horizon? Is there anything big in the works or uh, more of the same? Thanks, Alexandria. Yeah, we have a lot of um, uh, campaigns planned for post uh, Dobbs. Uh, one of the ones that will be coming out is on abortion regret. It's called Can't Stay Silent, and it's the voices of hundreds and hundreds and ultimately will be thousands of women telling their stories, which, again, mainstream narrative and political um, uh, groups don't want to tell. Uh, the stories of women and men are regretting abortion will continue exposing the abortion industry, continue shedding light on human development, 
um, and reporting on that. And, you know, personally, I hope to, I'm actually working on a book right now on um, morality and, and, and sex, because I do think, as Ryan was saying earlier, uh, this is really key to um, understanding how we got here. And if we're going to get out of here, <laughs> you know, the culture of death that we're in, we need to not only understand ourselves, you know, what is the proper role of sex and what does it mean to be a man or a woman, but we need to be able to articulate that to others in a winsome and um, persuasive way so that people can understand their identity as men or women and and can see what the role of sex and their sexuality is and how beautiful it is. So that's the future for me is continue to work on that space and um, educate in that space as well as continue to grow live action and be a mom. Do you have a title? My, my, my oh, and- friends. <laughs> The, you, you you left the most important part uh, uh, for last there. Um, do you have a title for the book uh, so listeners can I, I pre-order it or I, be on the lookout I, I for it? I share my working title. Why not? My working title is Morality Makes You Happy. And it's specifically yeah. about sexual morality and ordered ordered relationships towards sex, um, around yeah. sex. But That's great. It might be new in a few, you know, I'm in the writing process and you know how that goes with titles. So never write your title before you finish writing your book. They say, well, <laughs> I, I write 10 titles. So morality makes me happy, but, but it might be something else in a month. <laughs> but I mean, that that is very Aristotelian, Thomistic, um, you know, Servas Pinker, um, you know, his, his entire approach. So it's, it's very... Um, it's a very accurate um, title. Whether or not your publisher decides it'll sell books or not might be another well, question. It's a so very descriptively today. accurate. We're so miserable today because of disordered relationships. And the only way to change that is to know what the order is and then have the the encouragement and the the direction so you can start reordering. And that's, yeah. the, that's the path to human flourishing. But so many people are off that path because of lies. And, it, and it's so sad when I see, or, I mean, it breaks my heart. I mean, we've been blessed with, you know, having formation and knowledge on these things, you know, not from our own goodness, but because we've been given it right by others. And so it breaks my heart when people don't have access to it in a readily available and easy to digest way, because then they're living paths that are just going to bring them suffering. That's exactly right. So I'm looking forward to um, you you finishing the writing of the book and then you know uh, getting to read the book. But we're we're just about out of time. And so let me ask you this: We don't yet know uh, the ruling. We're recording this. Uh, possibly we're going to get the ruling tomorrow morning. So who knows? By the time this is um, published uh, next week, it could very well be common knowledge what the court has done. But assuming that the court does what we all hope and pray it does do, and it overturns Roe, overturns Casey. What is your advice to listeners on, you know, what do we do now? What do they do now? What is your kind of um, marching orders for the audience? Well, I say three things. Lean in harder than ever before. Number one, educate, educate, educate. Keep on. I mean, don't think, oh, everybody's made up their minds. It's decided on abortion one way or the other. People are changing their minds or reaffirming their positions or having their positions challenged every single day. So share facts about abortion, the abortion procedure, human development. Keep going on that. Number two, I think we need to be very vocal and and committed to making sure that in states where it's politically possible, they're a red state, you know, it's a Republican majority state, that we pass abortion abolition, that we pass complete legal protection for the preborn because if Roe's overturned, that means that the states are now um, getting to decide whether children live or die. They shouldn't, by the way. It's homicide. They need to protect children regardless whether they're blue or red, but at least in red states we'll have a shot at abortion abolition. We should achieve abortion abolition. So complete legal protection for the pre-born. 
And then the last thing is service, um, networks of support for women. Many listeners are probably already involved in pregnancy care movement or foster support or adoption support, or you're already involved in your church community by helping young families or single moms, or maybe you're involved in the marriage ministry. Keep that up and lean in even more because next up with post Dobbs world is building up a culture of life. And that means supporting young families and making America a healthier and more uh, supportive place for families. Well, it's very well said. Thank you for that encouragement. And thank you so much for joining us today, Lila. It's been a great conversation. Thank you guys. And congratulations again on the awesome book. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our life and family initiative.